So first of all, can you just tell me your name and uh, your current affiliation? Um, I'm Annette von Delft. Um, I work at the University of Oxford as a translational scientist um, for the Nuffield Department of Medicine. And the Nuffield Department of Medicine is very big and very large. So it's a, a institute within the Nuffield Department of Medicine that is called Centre for Medicine's Discoveries. That's great. Thanks very much. And without telling me your entire life story, but, but just summarising briefly, can you tell me how you got interested in medical science in the first place and how you got from there to where you are now? It was quite a journey to arrive where I am right now. Um, currently, I'm working in drug discovery, but this wasn't what I've always been doing. I am... Um, I'm originally South African and um, then my parents moved to Germany at some point and I studied medicine in Germany. Um, at that point, I wasn't quite sure whether this was what I was um, interested in doing. I um, also studied um, music on the side, um, which I tremendously enjoyed. But then after I finished my medical school, I got offered a PhD at Oxford. Um, in um, clinical medicine, um, where I worked on vaccine development, and interestingly, actually on the vector that played a role in COVID. Uh, so I worked on hepatitis C, um, immune responses, and then on vaccine design um, for hepatitis C in um, Ellie Barnes group. And um, that was really the point where I got really interested in infectious diseases overall. I after finishing my PhD, decided to go back to clinical medicine. So I had a couple of years of clinical work where I worked mainly as I rotated through the usual foundation program um, and ended up working in sexual health um, and in HIV clinics that I really enjoyed. And mainly because they were around infectious disease and viral diseases. And then for family reasons, at some point decided to have a break from the clinical training program where I had a gastroenterology post offered and um, kind of go back to research again. That was in 2018. So I, for about two years, um, worked um, at 60% for the university in a research position. And then addition, in addition to that, um, in the hospital and um, doing sexual health and HIV clinics. Um, and that at that point seemed to work quite well, well for us or for me, for me personally in terms of interest, but also for, for us as a family, as a, as, a, as a good setup. At that point, I had like three small kids and um, wanted to have a little bit more flexibility in what shifts I was doing and how many shifts I was doing at the time. So that, that was a, a, a very good setup. And then the pandemic hit. Um, so that, that, that's probably where your next question will start. Yeah, well, it's not quite my next question because I want to explore a little bit more um, of, of your, um, your expertise in drug discovery at, at, at the moment. Uh, but first of all, there's a question I'm just asking everybody, which is which, what, if there was a one kind of big question that really drives you in your research, what would you say it was? I, I think what what really interests me is how we can get from a very basic research finding to a patient and 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 how we can do that in a way that enables whatever we come up with whether that's a vaccine or whether that's a um, drug or whether that's a 
technology to be accessible to populations worldwide and also relevant. So how, how can we make sure that we don't waste our time on something that um, is actually not going to be used or not going to be accessible in the end? So it's, uh, it's quite, um, I suppose, quite multidisciplinary what, what you're interested in doing. What, what, are the, what would you say are the main methods and techniques that you use in your research? Um, so it's, it is quite difficult to nail it down to kind of different methods or because it's, it's a very broad field. Like I've, I've been working in vaccines previously and, and when it came to vaccines, the question was, how do we have to design them to make them relevant to the circulating viruses? Um, for, for drug discovery, the question is actually quite different. Um, we're using very different um, research techniques and different um, translational techniques to get this drug to the clinic. Um, but here, the, like the, the one big question that I'm currently working on with a very, very widespread team that works in lots of different institutions is how we can generate a drug that's not only working and um, that's a kind of a compound that is um, basically doing its job and safe enough and, and all those kinds of questions. But also, how can we make sure that we can get the compound to the patient in time, in different locations, um, and how can we set up um, licensings and patents and, and everything around that compound that um, it is actually um, a compound that can be given and that is not too expensive and that is accessible in Bangladesh as well as in um, Rwanda, as well as in Brazil. Um, so That's a very key point. So it sort of preempts my next question a bit, which was, why can't we just leave all this to drug companies? Isn't that what they're there for? I mean, tr traditionally, um, drug discovery has been mainly in, in big pharmaceutical companies. And, and they do have, and, and big pharmaceutical companies come with a tremendous network. And what they have, and, and that can't be underestimated, is an enormous logistical experience. Um, but um, on the other hand, also drug companies have to pay their employees and they run for profit. And, and um, they, they, there are mechanisms in place to make sure that um, patients in, um, in the global south do have access to the drugs, but um, all these mechanisms are not quite perfect. So for example, the medicines patent pool um, can provide um, drugs at lower prices to, um, to low and medium income countries, but there are some low and medium income countries that are left out from licenses from the medicines patent pool. And, and it, the, the question that I'm working very closely with um, Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative at the moment is um, how can we potentially um, enable um, these patient cohorts that are in, say, medium income countries that may not have access to um, the very high priced drugs on patents, but neither have access to drugs on, on the medicines patent pool drugs. How can we enable those to have access to COVID drugs, for example? And it's, it's not directly linked to the actual research that I'm doing, but um, 
what we are trying, what this was a unique experiment that we really run in the pandemic, which was, can we go all the way um, into clinic through open science? And we, we haven't answered that question yet. We're still in the process of doing it. We've got compounds in preclinical development at the moment that are not patent protect, protected. Um, and we're trying to work out whether there is a way and a setup and enough buy-in from generic companies, enough buy-in from governments, enough buy-in from um, access groups to make these drugs available. So that's what that's the kind of, if you want to, more social science problem that is, is unrelated to actually making a safe and efficient drug. So you've, you've used two terms there, which I'd like to spend a little bit more time on. Uh, one is neglected diseases. What, mm. what, what are neglected diseases and why are they neglected? So neglected diseases is, is quite a wide term and, and COVID is definitely not one of the neglected diseases at the moment in, in terms of research. But um, so I think um, traditionally neglected diseases um, is, is a class of disease where not a lot of um, research time and effort within pharmaceutical companies has been spent on generating um generating compounds or drugs against those diseases. So there are diseases without a lot of treatment options and diseases where there is not a lot of translation research ongoing to generate those treatment options. And um, for example, the reason that Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative in Switzerland exists is to look at exactly these um, diseases and make drugs against those that um, help patients that have these kinds of diseases to actually get treated. And leishmaniasis is one of those, Chagas disease is one of those, and then a, a couple of other diseases. And I wouldn't say that COVID as such falls into this category, but a neglected disease can also kind of line up with a neglected patient cohort. So a cohort that just doesn't have access to disease. So for example, hepatitis C virus, is not a neglected disease in any way. There are drugs available and millions of billions of, of pounds have been spent on, on hepatitis C research over the last 20 years. There are plenty of directly acting antivirals, but there are still neglected patient cohorts that don't have access to this kind of treatment at the moment, like even though they have been around for a long time. And, and actually a similar pro, um, problem has been um, obvious for HIV for a very long time. And you can even go a step further and say, there are neglected patient cohorts that don't have access to insulin and diabetes, uh, like diabetes patients that don't have access to insulin, which is a drug that is off patent and should be available to everyone. So it's um, a neglected disease doesn't necessarily equal a neglected patient cohort and not all of the questions have to be answered with de novo drug discovery. A lot of the questions can be answered with making drugs available to certain patient cohorts. Um, and this is not my area of expertise and, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful to be working with DNDI on this problem because they have the kind of IP lawyers, access specialists that um, are looking into these questions. The one unique thing that the Moonshot, the kind of um, 
the research effort I'm involved in ca can contribute to this theoretical question of how do we make drugs accessible is that it is an open access effort. So, right. so that brings me to my next question. So I still haven't quite got to COVID yet, um, <laughs> which is about, you talked about open science, open access. What do you mean by that? And what um, precedents have there been within Oxford um, for setting up conditions under which that kind of open approach can, can take place? Sorry, I'm talking about SGC. Just, yeah. Just... <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, open drug discovery, again, if you ask 10 people, we'll get 10, 10 different opinions on what open drug discovery actually means. And, and um, so the um, SGC in Oxford um, has, I should have said the structural, yeah, the structural genomics consortium has been founded um, in 2004 and actually doesn't only, um, didn't only have an Oxford site, it was a worldwide effort. Um, it has a Canadian side and Al Edwards um, has been absolutely key to this, um, like setting up this effort. It was very much his personal interest in looking into how can we um, generate early tools that enable drug discovery in an open way across companies. So how can we kind of basically pool um, efforts and um, across pharmaceutical companies. So the, the idea is actually quite revolutionary and um, it's getting different pharmaceutical companies to pay into a common pot. They can nominate targets and then um, there are different sites worldwide that bring different kinds of expertise and they will work on um, enabling these targets by developing tools. And by tools, I mean, generating structural data. So this was the very first step. So that's why it's called Structural Genomics Consortium. So they would take some genomic information. This was um, specifically for human proteins. So no viral proteins involved in the, at that point. This was for specifically to target the human genome. So they would go for a whole class of human proteins that at that point was under investigated. So you wouldn't have a structure available. And then um, kind of work on a whole class of proteins as a kind of wholesome approach. Because what you also have to know is that if you solve one protein structure, that doesn't yet give you very much information. You will want to know what the difference between this structure is and all the others to make sure that you can develop a drug specifically against the one protein of the class that you are interested in. And um, there were actually several other grants that took this concept a step further that were also at the SGC, where they didn't only look at the structure as such, but also developed an assay for protein. So this basically is, is a um, biochemistry tool that you use to show how your protein works. So you basically, if you, for example, as we will be talking about proteases later on, these are proteins that chop things up or cleave um, cleave other proteins or um, and cleave um, um, material. And, and these proteases um, or the function of these proteases you can assess in an assay. Um, and an assay will have a readout that you can measure at the end. So you would look at 
say, a little piece of protein or um, um, that, and, and you will find some way of showing whether it's together or, or cleaved into two pieces. And that's your function of your protease. And then if you add certain inhibitors that are supposed to inhibit your protease, you'll see that your protein even either stays in one piece if your inhibitor is working, or um, it gets cleaved into two pieces if your, your inhibitor is not working. So it's, it's, it's a tool to kind of find out what which inhibitors or which drugs or which fragments may be having some biological effect on that protein or not. So, and, and this you don't only develop for your one protein of interest, but you develop for the whole protein family to kind of make sure that you get a kind of good picture across. And, and that is really what pharmaceutical companies are very interested. And, 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 what the, the unique thing about the SGC was that they predefined that this is pre-competitive. We can use this information and it can be used across different pharmaceutical companies and we'll make this openly available so that anyone can um, use this information. So you can order the constructs from the SGC and, and, and the SGC even went one step further and said, we were, we're going to develop probes, so small molecules that are not drugs, they're far earlier than drugs, but they are things that you can use in cellular assays, things that you can use in your um, enzyme assays to make sure that you can show activity against that specific protein, but not all the other proteins of that family. So that's, and, and the SGC has been very successful in, exploring the epigenetic space, kinases, so different classes of proteins um, that, and based on these probes and structures that were developed through this setup, there are a whole class of drugs that are now in the clinic um, that, that kind of root from original efforts that are open access. Mm. So the, I, I suppose, yes, the actual outcomes are important, but the principle of that sharing of, of data at an early stage in the drug discovery process is one that uh, clearly has been shown to be, to be beneficial even, even to the commercially oriented company. There's one exception here. And um, what usually happened within this effort is that the compound, so the, the SGC would partner with a certain company on a certain target. And a lot of the medicinal chemistry efforts to actually making this probe was run within the company. And um, one of the probes that was active at the end would be published and accessible as an open access resource um, as part of the kind of SGC setup. But a lot of the other compounds that were developed in this process might not necessarily be open. So um, there was there wasn't or is an agreement within the SGC that the company can use the tools that are openly available to run their own drug discovery efforts if they choose to do so. And, and that was, was done for some, some companies and some SGC partners. And, and this is where the COVID moonshot is, is very different. So we'll get to that. <laughs> so let's, let's get on to finally get on to COVID. So when, um, just first of all, where can you remember how you first heard about the pandemic? in China and, and when you started to realize that this was something that you might uh, turn your own research effort towards? So I heard about 
I think I first heard about the pandemic through the news, but I, I very clearly remember an evening in December when um, my husband walked in and, and he works for the Diamond Light Source south of Oxford. He also works for Oxford University, but he works for the Diamond Light Source. And um, they had a student and they have an um, antibiotic program where they get exchange students from China coming to visit um, the UK on regular and um, in, in, in kind of two monthly terms, I think. And this student had arrived in, in the UK, it may actually have been January, I can't, can't remember the date, but I, I, this was kind of my first um, personal kind of interaction <laughs> with the whole program. And this, this, this student had arrived and while the student was on the flight, um, China had um, started to lock down. So that, that student had left and came from an area where there were COVID cases. And um, while the student was on the flight, they had locked down back home. And now the question was, what is going to happen to the student? Because suddenly Diamond, uh, the, the accommodation, the, the, the accommodation that was booked for the student said, oh, we can't have that student anymore. Um, so within um, Frank, my, my, my partner's group, there was suddenly this kind of uproar of, what are we going to do? Like this person has to stay somewhere. They can't stay in the booked accommodation because they're not going to have the student. Um, and we were kind of discussing back and forth. And then in the end, one of the, um, one of the researchers and, and, and Frank's group said, like, we've got an extra room in the house and my parents are happy to have her for that period of time. And um, there were no tests available. There was no way to know whether the student, but they, it basically ended up that the student happened to find a, a, a bolt hole in a kind of self-contained flat where they wouldn't be in touch with anyone else until they were able to fly back. The student ended up staying and, and, and actually working on, on, a, on a COVID protein um, um, while, while they were visiting. But that was my kind of very strong first remembrance. And, and then not a lot happened for a while. And, and then we had two things pretty much happening at the same time. One was I was starting to cough um, and that was in February. So I have picked up COVID in February already, so prior to lockdown, or, or maybe early March, um, in hospital, in one of my clinics, I must have just gotten it, um, and started coughing and, and was aware that actually, I, I actually may have picked this up, even though officially we didn't have any COVID yet in the country. Um, and, and at the same time, Frank's group at Diamond um, was contacted by the Chinese research group that was working on the SARS-CoV-2 main protease structure um, because um, Frank's research group at, at Diamond can very uniquely run very high throughput XCAN screens very fast. And the group in China had solved the structure of the MPRO protease because they had been working on SARS-1 previously. And Just tell me a little bit more about this MPRO protease. Um, so the the, the Protease is an interesting protein um, because the kind of research community, similarly as for the polymerase, knows that it's a drug target that you can develop inhibitors against. And 
So right at the start of the pandemic, there was obviously the question, how can we make a vaccine? That was, that was kind of one of the key questions and Oxford moved very fast ahead on that. And then if you think about, okay, what else can we use in our toolbox against COVID? It's not only vaccines, it will be small molecule inhibitors as well, because there will always be um, limits to what we can do with vaccination. And we will, especially at the start, where we haven't got the vaccine yet, we hopefully should have something in hand. And the obvious thing is repurposing efforts. So using a drug that is already in the clinic and that also works against the new disease. And unfortunately for COVID, that was very, very unsuccessful in, in a lot of ways. I mean, we've been able to identify immunosuppressive drugs that deal with kind of the lung disease. And I'm sure you will be talking to um, a lot of people that have been involved with the kind of game-changing recovery trial that was also based at Oxford. But on the small molecule front, there was actually, and the directly acting antiviral front, there was not very much that... Um, was able to be repurposed. Mm. Um, and what does the protease actually do? How, how does that help the virus infect? Okay, so, so um, when the virus enters the cell, it enters through spike protein and over two receptors, ACE2 and MTRMPSS2, it gets kind of into the cell. And as soon as it gets into the cell, it um, unpacks itself and comes into the cytoplasm. And once it sits into the cytoplasm, it gets translated into lo two long polyproteins. Um, they're called open reading frame 1A and 1B. And with this, you can't really do very much, but all, like all the proteins that the virus needs to replicate and make more virus are contained in these kind of two very long bits of, of material. And the protease kind of folds itself up and starts cleaving itself out of this open reading frame, but it also releases all the other proteins. The main protease, protease cleaves the polyprotein in 11 different states, in 11 different places. And then there's another protease, which is called the papin-like protease, and that cleaves in three different places. And the main protease has some similarity to other viral proteases, that um, we knew from experience can be targeted. So um, we know from experience that um, HIV proteases have been targeted and this had an effect on viral load and HCV proteases have been targeted. So hepatitis C virus proteases have been targeted and that had an effect on viral load. So it was one of the obvious targets to go after. The other one was clinical validation. So where we knew that if we inhibit that, will have an impact on viral load was the polymerase. It was, those were the kind of two proteins where we kind of knew we have a chance, basically. If we target those, we'll have a chance. And, and one of the other obvious things was that these two proteins were taken and a lot of screens were run against them to see whether some of the existing inhibitors bind and inhibit these. And unfortunately, um, we didn't really have and any kind of hepatitis C protease inhibitors, for example, that worked very well against the protease. In the polymerase, that was a different game. There were, um, so remdesivir, for example, was developed for, um, I think, Ebola originally. Um, and it wasn't on the market yet. It wasn't, wasn't um, a, a, but it, the, the whole development process had already been done. And similarly for monopiravir, which was developed for RNA viruses that had been um, developed originally, I think it was for, 
Venezuelan equine um, encephalitis virus, <laughs> um, so VEEV, um, and and so a lot of the kind of development for that compound was also done. And actually, the the inhibitors that we have now, Paxlovid, um, which was developed by Pfizer, and um, that piggybacked on um, quite old drug discovery efforts that were discontinued previously. So um, they used data that they had from SARS-1 and they used data that, and, and that effort even used data um, based on rhinoviruses. So there's kind of quite a lot of background research on the proteases that kind of show that if you target this and if you can do it efficiently, you may have a good chance to see something in the clinic. Mm-hmm. However, we didn't know until the phase two, uh, phase two, three data from Pfizer actually came out that this was a target that was clinically validated. Mm-hmm. So um, it took another one and a half years to actually say, yes, this is a worthwhile target to go after. Prior to that, we just were able to say it has worked in other viruses with similar proteases, but we weren't sure that it was going to work. Right. You're from a diversion, so you'd been but you'd been telling me how the Chinese had approached Frank, and he had, you know. Oh yeah. Sorry, yeah. I kind of <laughs> went a long way from that. So the Chinese had um, contacted um, Diamond Light Source, um, and specifically Frank's group, and um, said, "Look, we're going. We've got the construct of this protease, so the material that you will need to run this this experiment, which is called a fragment screen." And the aim of this experiment is to basically um, look at the protein in 3D shape and find the active site, so the site where the protease is cleaving. And then you use small bits of drug, um, which are called fragments, to basically paint that active site. So what you want to know is how would an inhibitor look like um, that would fit very snugly into this active site. Um, And if you use existing drugs to do that, you've got a good chance that one part of the drug might may fit, but the other part hangs out on the other side, or maybe it fits in a kind of weird position. But if you use small particles of a compound, then you have a better chance of mapping out the different positions very nicely. Um, and, and finding something that will bind with a very high affinity and also kind of, you, you want to find the perfect binder basically. And, and by using lots of small bits of drug and, and putting them into the crystal structure, um, you may be able to kind of get a better idea of how this kind of active binding site is set up and what you may need to do to map it out properly. So, and this experiment is um, called a fragment screen. And that is exactly the kind of experiment that they run at the Diamond Light Source for a whole lot of different human proteins, but also viral proteins. Um, However, to run this experiment, you kind of need the protein construct um, that you then make your protein from. um, And you need to fold the protein the right way um, have it packed into crystal form to then be able to run this experiment under the X-ray beam. And the experiment with just the crystal had been run in China and the Chinese group contacted them and said, look, we can ship you um, all the constructs over and we can even ship you the protein over for you to run the fragment screen. And um, the group at Diamond said, yes, we'll drop everything and ship us the protein. 
Um, however, the Chinese group got hit by the local lockdown and they weren't able to actually ship anything because everything was just shut. Um, so they just um, gave the Diamond Group the information and Martin Walter's group at Diamond then expressed the protein um, very, very fast. And, and the, the team at Diamond literally dropped everything and ran this fragment screen as the absolute priority. They generated a lot of different um, structures and were actually really lucky that the fragment screen ran so well. And they got a lot of different fragment hits and decided that this information has to go out in the open as fast as possible um, to enable drug discovery efforts to use that information. And at that point, that was where, where the real difficulty started because um, the Diamond team can run this kind of fragment screen at very high throughput, but what is not yet established is technology to get from all these different fragment hits to an active compound. So the so-called hit to lead finding. So you've got different hits. So you've got some idea of what might fit into that binding site, but none of these hits independently will actually inhibit the protein. You'll have to make sure that this kind of, they get joined together or joined up and make a compound that actually inhibits the protein, survives in an animal or a human, and, and, and actually has an effect on, on the compound. And, and that usually is a very, very long process of five to 10 years to kind of get to that point. Um, and what um, Frank and um, a couple of his collaborators that have been trying to kind of work on techniques to address this particular problem previously had decided at that point is, we actually are out of our depth. We don't really know how to get from a fragment to a compound, but we can outsource or crowdsource this problem and basically ask a lot of medicinal chemists to contribute to this. And um, the kind of key founders of the Moonshot at that point decided, okay, we're, we're crowdsourcing this. We're doing something completely new. Everything is going to be in the open. We're going to ask medicinal chemists all over the world to look at this information and tell us their ideas. And what we will do is we will make sure that these compounds are actually ranked and made and tested. So near London and at the Weizmann Institute in, in Israel said, if you give me the protein, I can set up an assay. They've got a high, high throughput assay facility. And Chris Schofield here in Oxford at the Chemistry um, Institute said the same. They set up a different kind of assay. So we have two different assays running. Then um, Alpha Lee at Postera AI, which is a newly found biotech company, um, said, look, guys, we can't run this all in, on, on Google Sheets or Google Docs we'll need to kind of make a better plan. So within one and a half days, one of his programmers, Matt, had set up a website that um, all the medicinal chemists could submit their ideas to. Um, and then very early in the process, a medicinal chemist um, that worked for AstraZeneca antibiotics previously um, called Ed Griffin, he now works for a small biotech as well, said, I can coordinate this effort and kind of try help to rank the ideas. He, he came involved and then John Kudera, who's um, working at MSKCC in, in New York. Um, he has a um, AI technique or um, actually he's running 
a machine learning modeling that predicts which compounds will fit very well into the active binding site and have a high likelihood of being a good inhibitor. And he uses um, a technique called FEP for these um, calculations. He said, I'm going to do exactly that um, for the moon chart. These are super complicated com um, mathematical modeling um, um, calculations that I don't completely understand. But what I do know is that he built the biggest, the world's biggest supercomputer um, running these calculations for the moonshot and um, through a consortium that is called Folding at Home, which basically uses GPUs from home computers worldwide to kind of group them all together. So that was that was kind of the birthing hour when they came up with these ideas and then said, we're going to tweet about this and then we're going to find some money between our sofa cushions to try to get these compounds made. And so they all kind of went to their research budgets and saw what they could redistribute into making these actual compounds, found a little bit of money here and there. And, and then the kind of crucial step was a Ukrainian company, Enamine, joining the picture and saying, we can actually synthesize these compounds for you at cost. So um, they were the kind of crucial contributor and not only um, because they were actually making the compounds, you could have outsourced to other compounds, but they also picked up all the logistics. So they sent out the compounds as soon as they were made to Diamond Light Source to run the co-crystal structures and also um, coordination around the project. And that was kind of the birthing hour of the neutron. I think that was the 18th of March, 2020, where, where this all happened. And then a lot of like the response to, to all these tweets was overwhelming. So it was submitted to the website. Um, and I think- in, Yes, like, I, I, was going to, I was going to sort of um, bring that up because this, I mean, the scientific community does use Twitter quite a lot now. Um, can you hear me? Yes. I've just started using a microphone. Um, um, but the, this was really off the scale, wasn't it? The extent to which Twitter um, expanded the Moonshot project. Yes, it, it, was, or it was definitely a much bigger response than the original team had expected. There were suddenly, like, the, I remember at that time, and I only know that because I was actually doing the homeschooling, feeling really unwell <laughs> with COVID at home at the time. But basically, Frank was on three to four um, logistical conversations every day, um, trying to set up this operation. They were overwhelmed with responses at the start um, and trying to kind of get this effort off the ground was... Yeah, was something that they had none of them had ever done before um so it, it it took quite a lot of um coordination between all these different sites because everyone was sitting at home and all these medicinal chemists that saw um these tweets looked at the data and said oh yeah i actually i can imagine doing this or this would do something um so yeah the response was overwhelming and and the buy-in from the scientific community was overwhelming. I think it was a unique situation because sudden, this came exactly in the week where everyone was locked down suddenly. Um, so this is, so well, we're still only in, yeah, the end of March, 2020. Yes, yes, yes. This was, so the tweet went out on the 18th of March and I think you locked down on the 25th or 26th? 23rd, 23rd, 23rd. I think it was, yes, yeah, yes. So it was, yeah. was exactly that time. Mm. And, and actually uniquely because so this is this is where the kind of uniqueness of the moonshot started. Every single compound was online and visible at conception. 
So everything was completely in the open. Everyone could see the compound. And as soon as we had an en as soon as it was made and we had an enzyme result available, it was on the website and visible to everyone. So um, anyone could trace their information and see what had happened, whether their compound was being ranked to be made. Um, because we couldn't make all the submissions. We ranked the submissions first and then made the top ones that we thought would work, both because of budget constraints, but also because um, we didn't have enough synthesis capacity, even at a company like Enamine, to make, like, actually synthesize all those compounds. Um, but what the other thing that happened is that a lot of employees at pharmaceutical companies that would usually not be able to contribute to anything outside their company was uniquely able to contribute to this because there wouldn't be any patents on this chemical matter because everything was open and disclosed right at the start. So that, that was something that was unprecedented, I think. And um, the other thing that was unprecedented was the interest from pharmaceutical companies to contribute in kind. So for example, um, UCB had a whole team of medicinal chemists that came to the weekly MedChem meetings um, and could, were able from the company to contribute a slice of their time to um, um, synthesize or to design compounds for the moonshot effort. And that's in addition to the people that were sitting at home and just doing this for fun. Um, and, and I think this, the timing was, was unique and, and also the, the way of doing it was unique and was very much kind of spurred by the pandemic because this was suddenly of interest to everyone, um, which, which probably won't be repeated in this way in, ever again, or, or maybe it might be, but let's hope not, um, because let's hope we won't have the situation again where we all have to lock down because of the pandemic. So what you've described is like a kind of massive filter that's taking in an enormous amount of material at the top, and what you want to get out at the bottom is uh, a, a drug that can be used um, what, but to, both to prevent and to treat uh, the virus is that the idea? And uh, sorry, another question at this point is: you, you, you mentioned that while all this was going on, you were homeschooling at home, but you were very much part of the Moonshot project. So, what was your role? So I joined a little later. Um, I wasn't involved at the right at the start. Um, I was actually um, at that time helping um, Nicole Zitzman, who's a virologist here at Oxford, to set up a screening facility, and that was for repurposing compounds. So um, I, I had a slightly different role. Um, basically, all my normal work, um, which was on epigenetic inhibitors, um, shut down completely because um, all, all non-essential COVID work was deprioritized and didn't happen. Um, but I had worked on, on viruses before quite a lot, and I actually um, had grown viruses as well. So um, I had the necessary expertise to uh, set up help set up that part of a kind of screening program. And right at the start, the moonshot obviously didn't have any compounds. It takes time to make these compounds. So I wasn't involved with that part of the work. I was trying to set up a screening facility with, with Nicole and William James. Obviously that also didn't happen that fast because we had to kind of 
get some virus first, make sure the virus is growing. And my my role in this kind of whole setup was very organizational. So I looked through all the nominations for um, repurposed screening, um, ranked those, put a process in, um, and then enabled ultimately enabled the cellular screening. So it was a very, very different role. But as soon as moonshot compounds were available, I was then able to help to coordinate all the cellular screening and the capacity that we had at Oxford wasn't sufficient in any way. So we set like we had a massive buy-in from antiviral groups worldwide that said, yes, we can screen some compounds for you. Like some of them were fairly high throughput because of the technologies they used and because of the assays they used. And some of them were very low throughput. So some of them screened maybe five or 10 compounds. Some of them screened hundreds. And um, so it was very dependent on what was exactly used in that, in that particular setup. But um, my role kind of evolved and, and most of the work that I was doing, I was doing at night because during the day I was homeschooling. Um, and it wasn't directly linked to the moonshot, but at the time that the moonshot actually had cellular active compounds, we had our setup running to contribute to the moonshot. So it, it kind of all came together. So right at the start, when everything got set up, I had a more of a um, commenting role. <laughs> um, and, and I was just very interested to see how everything was working out. But my actual daytime job was very different. And only in, I would say, probably early June, that was when I when I started contributing to the moon job, because that was when they had active compounds coming through. Um, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Yes, yes. And and so how did it de develop from from there? Um, how, how what what well, what have been the main outcomes of, of the project? Okay, um, so this is now June 2020. Mm. It became clear um, during that time that we were onto something. So we at that point had um, several medicinal chemicals, several series, so different compounds that looked different that showed cellular activity. And at that time, we had to decide which of those to take forward. So we were trying to kind of screen as widely as possible across the series to make sure that we had and that we chose the right one to take forward, because at that point it came, became a financial constraint. We basically had to get our compounds a lot more potent. At that point, they were potent, but um, they weren't at a point where we would expect them to have a good antiviral effect once they're going to be put into human. So we had to drive the potency down. And at the same time, we also had to kind of figure out whether these were the kind of compounds that would um, survive in, 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 in a human. And, and for that, you do a range of tests. And these tests are usually done at um, contract research organizations, and they're very expensive. So we had to start looking for um, money to pay for that, so for grants. And, and up to January 2021, um, it was actually extremely difficult to come to, to find money to fund novel drug discovery because we were still hoping to solve the problem completely with vaccines. And, and actually, we've done tremendously, we're so lucky that we have done so tremendously well with the vaccines. 
Um, and we were also still hoping to find some kind of repurposed drug that, um, so some kind of existing drug that would get us around the fact of having to develop a new drug. Um, it was clear at the time that there were a few companies working on this, but what we didn't know was whether any of these new compounds would actually work and how quickly they would be available. And the effort that Pfizer has put down is actually absolutely unprecedented and they invested a lot of money into it upfront with a very high risk um, to get to that. So we were never in the position to match that, but um, what, what wasn't clear is what would be coming afterwards. And the other experience that we do have from antiviral drugs is there will be resistance developing. So we will always have new viral strains coming. We'll always have to have not only one drug available, but several drugs available to be able to combat a new circulating strain. And we can't predict very well what that is the new strain is going to be. We may have some idea, but basically the best that we can do is have an arsenal available that targets different proteins and targets them in different ways. So that's, we knew that at that point, um, but we weren't actually able to move very far ahead without additional funding. So my main role in set in the, in the coming months was actually trying to look for funding and trying to write grants that would fund the next steps, but also ask for in-kind contributions. And, and, and at that point, um, we were actually much more successful asking for in-kind contributions from other pharmaceutical companies than asking for funding. So a lot of our um, funding um, approaches were deemed as not in scope because up to 2021, novel drug discovery was not in scope for a lot of the grant applications. It was only vaccine development, clinical trials and repurposed drugs. Um, that only changed in 2021. And that's when we started talking to the Wellcome that is now funding us um, for, for this effort. They started funding us in July, 2021 and um, for the late lead optimization and preclinical stages. What happened prior to that is that several pharmaceutical companies um, bought into the project and often alongside internal efforts that they are pushing themselves and um, provided us with huge amounts of in-kind contribution. And, and in our case, these in-kind contributions were mainly um, an ADME testing. And ADME testing is, is something that um, everyone who works in drug discovery knows very well what it is, but it's a, it's a pretty theoretical concept for everyone else. So basically, it's a range of lots of different tests. How, do you, how do you spell it? It's a, an acronym. Is it? A D M E. So right. it stands for absorption. So how does the drug get into the body? And distribution. How does the drug behave when it gets into the body? So does it tend to go into kind of the fat tissue? Does it tend to kind of stay in the blood volume? Then metabolism. So basically what happens when the drug hits the liver? Um, which enzymes split the drug? How quickly does that happen? Does it block enzymes? And then elimination. So basically how quickly does it leave the body again? And which transporters does it use to leave the body again? So it's ADME. And for all like there's one way to test it, which is to give it to someone and see what it does. 
obviously you can't really do that with a new drug because it may be toxic and you may not want to give it to someone at this point. But what you can do is run a lot of kind of tests to see what each of these parameters may look like by the time you actually put this into a human being. And um, for example, you may use some liver cells and put the compound onto the liver cells and see how long it survives or whether it gets chopped up straight away. Or you may add it to some transporters and see how quickly it gets transported in and out of the cell. Or you may um, look at plasma protein binding. So you'll have some human serum and add the compound to it and then see how much of the compound gets bound to the serum and how much stays free. And all these are very important parameters to try to work out how whether your compound might be something that may behave very well in humans or might be something that is actually completely rubbish. You can give it to a human, but it may not even be taken up. And so this is, and all these tests are very, very important for drug discovery, but at the same time, very, very expensive to run. Um, so um, we were very lucky because Novartis, um, the company, basically as in kind contribution gave a whole block set of these tests to the COVID moonshot as an in kind contribution and enabled us to run this, these tests at their company. So roughly and how many compounds were you looking at at this stage? Um, hundreds still. Hundreds. hundreds. So, so the, the thing is, it's also, it's not, not you don't make all the compounds up front and say we are going to test all these what it, it, it's an iterative cycle so you make the compound you see oh this works really well is really potent but actually it's clear far too quickly um, and it, it doesn't really behave that well when you actually expose it to the liver and then the medicinal chemists the clever medicinal chemists know, oh, if we change this little bit here on the compound, that may help us. So you make that compound, test it again, obviously it's not potent. So we have to try loads and loads of different ones to get the potent one again, and then we test it again and say, ah, okay, so this time we came up with something that behaves well in the liver and is potent, but actually it, um, like the, there may be something else wrong with it. So um, actually it's not taken up into the body. So it's, 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 it's an iterative cycle and you kind of narrow down and test different things. Um, and at the end, we tested probably around 600 or 700 compounds in different tests and different combinations. Overall, we've generated, I think, 2,300, we actually made 2,300 compounds to get to the kind of three compounds that we are now evaluating closer. Um, but we still, we're still not at a point where we can say this is our final compound that we can take into the mm -hmm. so it is so, Sorry, you're, you, you said three. You've gone from hundreds to three. Is that yes, what you so said? We are yes. at, the, at the three stage at the moment. <laughs> and, and actually, this is what the Wellcome Trust is funding us to do, is get from three to one compound and actually has, have one compound available that we are planning to put into clinical trials next year. So that's where we are currently at. We are um, running all the preclinical scale up, which basically means making a whole lot of that compound so that you can like at this, the end have enough to actually give it to patients. Um, and a whole lot of process chemistry is required for that because what you have to imagine is 
we only made tiny, tiny amounts for the, this, of this compound to um, look at cellular assays and all these tests. But if you want to give it to a patient, you actually need quite a lot of it. Um, how much exactly is what we're trying to work out at the moment. Um, and this is, this is called process chemistry. So that's, that's part of what's happening right now. And there's a whole lot of other process chemistry, and you'll hear a lot of, of that with the vaccine people, is what comes after your phase one to actually provide hundreds of people, thousands or ten thousands or hundred thousands of people with this compound. So that's yes, a whole yes. different ball game again. And that's what pharmaceutical industry is actually extremely good at. Um, so, so do you have you do, do you have a pharmaceutical industry partner who's taking all that on? No, no, because we haven't got a patent, so it will be very difficult to make money from I our see. compound. We'll be more like a generic company, yeah, that would be interested in this kind of product. Um, so that's that's very much what is happening in our strategic discussions at the moment with the NDIs. How can we? come up with a setup that entices a generic partner to work with us on this because it's, it is quite unlikely that a pharmaceutical company will have enough interest in in a compound that doesn't come with a patent where you can't earn a lot of money off the compound so the, basically this this would be a cheap compound a generic from the start that is available to the masses so that's I mean, in a way, it's a unique selling point in terms of drug access. But if you want to earn a lot of money off a compound, it's not particularly attractive. Mm, mm, very and interesting. So I've got sorry, two questions on that. So, so one is, first of all, what, how do you envisage this compound? If, if it works, if it passes all these tests, how do you envisage it being used um, in, in the future? Is it, is it would you give it prophylactically or is it, is it um, something you would give to people who have symptoms or how would it actually be used? So if you think about like natural infection of COVID, what happens at the start is you get exposed to the virus and then you get a viral load increasing. And then um, right at what happened right at the start is because we didn't have any natural immunity, we didn't have any vaccine responses. And um, we did see, um, the kind of innate, uh, innate immune response kind of rising up and, and generating this kind of very acute lung picture. And, and, and that is where a lot of the immunosuppressants worked, kind of when you got into hospital and um, basically dampening down that immune response. What we are talking about is this kind of first um, increase in viral load. So this is a drug that would have to be given very early after infection and it's similar to Paxlovid, it's actually exactly the same as Paxlovid. You'll have to give it as early as possible. It works best if you give it within the first five days and it will decrease your likelihood of developing um, a innate immune response towards the virus. And that then brings you into hospital or, or lets you die in the end. The, what is happening at the moment is that this picture is changing completely anyway, because we've got a lot of um, natural immunity that is developing with all the different variants that are coming through the population. And a lot of people are not dying anymore, but still getting quite sick from the viral load. So what we would envisage is to use this similarly to how we use um, 
Paloxivir for flu or Tamiflu for flu. So right at the start, when you know you have been exposed, you may have just had a positive test. That's when you would take the drug and you would hope that that would um, ameliorate your symptoms. But also if you are an at-risk patient that may not have an immune response yet or was not eligible to the vaccine, and um, at that point would um, lower your risk of hitting a hospitalization endpoint or would lower your risk of death and um, in the kind of worst case scenario. Um, here again, we're kind of moving into a bit of a, a difficult space because um, what we, um, the clinical trials endpoints that we're looking at currently still have death and mortality and, um, and clinical trials uh, and hospital admissions as the primary endpoints, or even just a drop in um, oxygen load or um, clots developing. So everything that kind of comes in the later stages, we may have to look at very different um, endpoints in one or two years time to come, where we look at symptom duration or just lowering of viral load as a kind of public health intervention in a way. Um, so this is, this is a very rapidly changing field. And the part of that that we can't predict is what is going to happen if there's a virus coming along that evades immunity much more than Omicron has done, for example. We still expect the protease inhibitors to work quite well across the different um, um, coronavirus strains. So that's what, something that we know from um, phylogenetic sequencing is that the um, protease is relatively conserved. It's not quite as conserved as the polymerase, but it's more conserved than, for example, spike protein. So it, it, um, there's a good likelihood that um, the protease inhibitors will play a role for new strains developing and um, that escape the immune response. But it's a very changing and unclear picture at the moment. So it's a good question. My answer now will look probably very different to what my answer would look like in three months. But you have, Lisa, you, you have the funding to take it forward, so that's really good. So, do you looking at looking at this the 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 the, the, the amazing um, process that you've all gone through? Uh, do you see this as a model for future drug discovery, or do you think this was a one-off? I think in the how it went and the speed it went at was probably a one-off. However, I think we can learn, we can take very important bits and pieces from it and apply them to both different diseases and also to similar diseases, um, but for different compounds. And, and part of that is actually what we're doing right now. We're setting up um, a new consortium well, we, we got funded by the NIH, the Moonshot got funded by the NIH to set up one of their avid drug discovery units, which is basically a, you could say a virtual drug discovery unit. It's, it's very well funded with um, $68 million um, across five years. And this is funding for pandemic preparedness. So basically generate, so basically repeating what we've done for the Moonshot, but for different kinds of viruses, that may have pandemic potential. And we will reuse a lot of the kind of open access ideas um, and, and pre-competitive science ideas for this new consortium. Um, that, that, that's a very interesting project for us because we can actually implement a lot of the learnings that we had from the Moonshot into 
a similar drug discovery effort. I think there are lots of other diseases that um, this could be relevant or parts of this could be relevant to. So I, I'm thinking AMR, so um, antimicrobial resistance would be one of the obvious fields where a lot of pre-competitive science would be extremely worthwhile to the field. Um, but also a lot of the kind of thoughts that we have on the kind of potential return of investment once you developed a drug it, um, is, are, are going to be crucial to AMR as a field as well. Um, and potentially rare diseases. So yes, there are things that we can learn. I don't think the exact setup could be repeated. That was probably something that was very unique to the pandemic with the acceleration. Um, even though we were much slower than, for example, Pfizer that was doing a very similar drug, although very different mechanism, like it's, it's a um, non-covalent inhibitor that we are having, it's a covalent one that they're having. So there are lots of differences. Um, we couldn't have done it at their time scale, but and and even our time scale is extremely accelerated in comparison to what might be possible in a non-pandemic setup. Um, and also, I think the kind of amount of in-kind contribution would be very difficult to generate in the future um, for, for other kinds of diseases. But I think a lot of the ideas um, should be taken forward in different areas. Oh, we've only got three minutes left. Um, <laughs> um, so which I have to pick a question to ask. Um, well, I'll ask my, I guess, the usual final question. So uh, has, the, has your experience of working through this, um, on this project through the pandemic, uh, changed your attitude or your approach to your work? And what would you see like to change in the future? It has been absolutely crazy the last two years, um, both personally trying to kind of just get everything organized, like having the kids during the day, which we couldn't send back to school because we had COVID in the house, even though I would have been a key worker. Um, um, actually, at, at some point, Frank was admitted to hospital with COVID um, while the moonshot was running. Um, so, um, like both on it, I wouldn't like to to repeat the personal experience and the the pure workload, but also this urgency or feel of urgency around work. So, I'm actually looking forward to um, using all the learnings, the professional learnings that I had, and it has been an incredibly incredible learning experience, and and just taking that forward um into into the next phase and using that um to basically deliver compounds and um and and knowledge for the common good so that's 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 something that i feel very passionate about and and i think i got even more passionate about it in the last two years seeing like how there is still such a divide between access to treatment and drugs here or in the US or and kind of in the developed countries and, and then compared to what, what I can see. And, and, and that starts with testing actually. It's, it's not, not actually just compounds of drugs, it's, it's access to healthcare. So it's, it's something that I, I feel even more passionate about than I felt beforehand. So that's something that is definitely more pronounced. What 
was absolutely unique. And what I would like to carry forward as well is this um, feeling of we can do this together. Um, and that is something that I now also find very strongly in the pandemic preparedness field that everything is working towards now is that we will need to keep this sense of togetherness and call to arms to be prepared for next pandemic because the likelihood of that is unfortunately not that low. Um, so that's, that's something that I'd like to maintain. Excellent. Thank you very much. Oh, I've lost my cursor again. <laughs> Come on. Where is it? Come. Where is it? There it is. Uh, 